the U.S. just hit its 5 millionth case of COVID-19. Meanwhile, Congress fails to act to extend the enhanced unemployment benefits they passed back in March. So President Trump decided to enact the parts of the package his own party has consistently opposed in the negotiations by executive order. Schools all over the country are opening up and then promptly shutting back down. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and ensure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. That, if you didn't know, is the preamble of the U.S. Constitution. From its very first line, it is a call to collective action. But we, the people, are failing pretty hard right now at stopping the spread of this virus. Whether it's the rush to open up bars or clubs or schools, or the unwillingness to wear masks in public places, or the politicization of this pandemic writ large, it's hard to imagine something more collectively pressing than a global pandemic that has infected 5 million Americans and killed over 160,000 to spur us into that collective action. Alas, that failure has left almost everyone waiting on a vaccine. The vaccine that all of us have been waiting for, could it be possible that it will come over the next several months? Where does this put us in the race to find a vaccine and how far are we from returning to life as we once knew it? By the time we get to the end of this year, we may have vaccine one or more candidate that is actually safe and effective. But here's the problem. Vaccines are only a silver bullet if everyone takes one. Scientists are in a breakneck race for a vaccine that is both safe and effective. Indeed, the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed has invested over $10 billion in various candidate vaccines that show promise with the aim of manufacturing 300 million doses by early 2021. If they succeed, the manufacturer of the vaccine, likely multiple manufacturers, will have shattered the previous record of four years. But could that be part of the problem? Critically, Given how contagious the virus is, in order for a vaccine to be effective to reduce the spread of COVID-19 through herd immunity, 60 to 70 percent of people would need to take it. A recent study from Pew Research found that just a bit more than that, 72 percent of Americans, would be willing to take the vaccine if one were available today. But let me say that a different way. A Pew Research study found that 27 percent of Americans would not be willing to take a vaccine if it were available today. That's nearly one in three Americans. That one in three puts us right at the edge of herd immunity. And that's not accounting for the logistics of actually getting the vaccine to 70-plus percent of the country. Whatever happens to COVID-19 over time, the pestilence of misinformation is tragically here to stay. At the end of the day, the name of the game is trust in the immunization and in the medical community. And if people trust that the vaccine is important and they also trust that disease is very dangerous, either of those two things, they'll go and get the vaccine. That's Ethan Lindenberger, the vaccine activist who famously got vaccinated against his mother's wishes after he turned 18. For the last few years, Ethan has been a leading voice against anti-vaxxer activism. He's helping us understand what we need to do to reach out and educate the misinformed. I spoke with Ethan about misinformation in the age of COVID-19, my first of two interviews on today's pod. Ethan, thank you for taking the time to come back on the pod and uh, to chat with us about you know medical conspiracies generally, but also the anti-vaccine movement and and what we can do uh, to make sure that these vaccines are are actually as effective as they can be because people use them. Absolutely, and thank you for like having me back on, man. It's my privilege. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about um, how misinformation has complicated COVID nineteen uh, responses generally? 
Yeah, uh, so COVID-19 has been a really interesting situation overall because it's been a really big shift in a lot of people's perspective from public health to personal health, where generally disease outbreaks, vaccinations, and most medical discussions weren't taking place in people's homes. And a lot of these individuals that are now talking about it are talking about social distancing, wearing masks, proper medical precautions, if a vaccine will come out, and it's really bled into the public conscience. And because of that, a lot of the misinformation has tried to kind of wedge itself in that conversation and put itself into those homes, um, which it's been able to do successfully by disseminating a lot of lies about masks, about social distancing, about the vaccines that could come out, especially from the same perpetrators that we've seen before through vaccines discussions overall. Um, and so a lot of it has been for the same reasons too. And we can get into more of that later, but we're seeing generally that whenever medical discussions are on the rise, there's conspiracies on the rise as well. And that's very intentional. And COVID-19 is no different. Mm. And um, so from, from what I'm hearing, the same people who generally perpetuate, you know, anti-vaccine mythology and, um, and medical conspiracies generally have tended to be the same people who have been peddling this, this misinformation around COVID-19? Yeah, uh, you see a large number of the kind of big players that will spread lies about vaccines overall, or at least uh, introduce distrust, not necessarily say that vaccines are completely toxic, but maybe there's better alternatives, that kind of discussion. Um, those individuals will largely take opportunities with COVID-19 and try and introduce themselves into that and spread some more lies um, for a lot of very obvious reasons that you can point to. Um, most of them coming back to the same reasons why they would spread disinformation around vaccines in the first place, which is just monetary gain, um, influence, a lot of very um, personal reasons that make a lot of sense, but are still very selfish, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that was one of the most astounding things that uh, you helped to clarify in our first conversation was that there is a real personal gain to be had around becoming a vocal vaccine critic. You um, then, of course, make yourself the salesperson for the quote-unquote alternative, even though there is no real alternative. Um, have you seen that happen with COVID-19? And, and if so, how? Yeah, so COVID-19, a lot of the uh, fears right now are around the immune system and uh, how powerful it is. And so most of the information people are getting right now is that if you're older and you have a weak immune system, you're not going to be able to fight COVID-19 off very well. If you're younger and if you have a strong immune system and say you're between 15, 16, up to your 30s, then you're going to be fine. And that kind of information and that kind of, uh, which is not really true to a large degree, we've seen a lot of healthy people have been very damaged and hurt by COVID. Um, because of those beliefs, people have looked to like immune system boosters and other supplements that might increase the power of their immune system. And even thinking that masks only do anything if they need to wear them as part of a larger conspiracy. And that bleeds into the trust of these sources. And so it's not necessarily just, oh, you need to buy my supplements or, oh, you need to believe what I'm saying. It's, hey, everyone else is lying and I'm the one who's telling you that. So you should believe me. And then that leads into the book I'm selling or whatever else I'm doing. And we've seen a large part of that because COVID-19 has led to a lot of very angry people towards like very important sources like the government, medical professionals and individuals we normally should trust have been attacked and kind of demonized by a large part of the public. Um, and that leads to them trusting these sources a lot more, um, which is very, they know that. I know that in your advocacy work, um, you track a lot of these uh, key anti-vax conspiracy peddlers. How quickly uh, into the pandemic did it take them to start 
you know, starting to profiteer off of uh, the, the the pandemic? How quickly did they start, you know, moving their message to focus on uh, the pandemic? And, you know, did any of them decide that, yeah, yo, this COVID-19 thing is actually real and everybody should pay attention to what the government is saying? Or were they all, you know, to a T um, continuing with, with, with peddling conspiracy theories? Well, you have to look at it like from their perspective. If you, you are selling information and convincing people that you are the arbiter of truth and you are the one that is kind of leading the flock away from these lying shepherds and everyone who's convincing them otherwise, it, to admit that the government has the best interest at heart and that they are right is a really big uh, blow to your trust and security as an individual. And so from the very start, people were very you know scared. They were trying to purchase like toilet paper and toiletries and like water and everything non-perishable out just at every Walmart ever. Like that was how it started. And it was just a wild time. But soon after that, people started to settle down a little bit and COVID-19 became much more real discussion rather than kind of world ending. And so once people started taking it more seriously and then even started to get angry because of how prolonged the quarantining was, that's when we saw a lot of these big players come out of the woodwork and start to spread like these lies because they ride that wave of like negativity and distrust in the government. So whenever people start to go, hey, I'm really angry at the medical community. I'm really angry at, you know, the health uh, secretary of this state or like this individual or the governor, like that kind of discussion taking place is when they can introduce themselves most uh, proactively. So even in Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine has been very proactive um, in my home state about being very careful with COVID, prolonged quarantine, extreme health precautions. And, you know, with the leader of the Ohio Department of Health, um, we've had like very big discussions between the two of them about what to do here, which is like the model for what each state should do. And Ohio has been one of the worst cases of protesters and people being very angry and not for the lack of reasoning that people have been stuck at home and this has been going on longer than other states. And so they'll point to Florida, point to California and, and say, we should be out in the arcades and roller coasters and having fun and be in our beaches and communities. And that's when the anti-vaxxers swoop in and say, hey, you're angry. We're angry. This is why we don't trust the government. You shouldn't vaccinate your kids. You don't need to wear a mask. And that's really how I've seen this play out by a large margin. Wow. So, the, so they they really carefully calibrate the timing so that the emotional tenor is there, um, and 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 they capitalize on people's frustration. You know, we are working really hard on um, fast tracking a vaccine uh, that would be really critical to being able to protect society from this disease, given that so many of our traditional public health measures have uh, struggled mightily against this um, individualism that you're talking about. Um, how do you feel like the anti-vax movement may complicate our ability to get vaccinations out at scale? Oh, man, uh, it could complicate it to the point where it could like really very, very clearly damage um, the entire response with the vaccination. Um, because at the end of the day, the name of the game is trust in the immunization and in the medical community. And if people trust that the vaccine is important and they also trust that disease is very dangerous, either of those two things, they'll go and get the vaccine. You know, when the polio vaccine came out, the, the reason people got the vaccine, maybe it wasn't because they trusted it, but it's because they knew polio was dangerous. They saw it happen every day. They had neighbors and people that they knew that were close to them that were in iron lungs. And so they said, I don't care if there's a one in a million chance or one in 10 billion chance that I get hurt. I don't care if it's one in 10. I'm getting this vaccine because I don't want to be an iron lung. Like that was the big reason people got the vaccine. They didn't care about the safety as much, even though it was safe. It was just because they needed to avoid that disease. And the other side of it is if the vaccine is very safe, people will get it. And so we know that 
vaccines are one of the most safe medical procedures and um, actual tools we have. But that's a big part of the reason why people don't get vaccinated is because these lies about you know effectiveness and and uh, safety. So how COVID could be complicated is on both those fronts. And you don't feel like the fact that we've already had 130,000 people die of this disease and growing, you don't feel like that's enough of a forcing function to get people to say, you know what, you know, if we want to have our freedoms and we want to be able to go out and we don't want to worry about businesses shutting down or having to wear a mask, we've got to get vaccinated. It's not enough. It's, it's still not enough, you think? Absolutely not, because when it comes to these deaths, a lot of the misinformation has been about those deaths. It's been about how they are extremely old, extremely young. They also have uh, you know, pre-existing health conditions, and so that's not our fault. If we don't take it seriously, if we decide to go live our lives, they were probably going to get sick anyways. And those the blaming that victim group has led to people saying, well, there's really no victim in the first place. Those people were already sick, and if they got the flu, they would have died anyways, which is completely ridiculous. And so it's so gross to even blame the victims of disease regardless of any circumstance. But that's kind of how the discussion has gone. And with any immunization, um, even for ones that have just as a dangerous disease that they immunize against, so like measles, measles kills was the biggest killer of children under like five years old when it was um and still is when it was around um so like when measles was really large before we had the vaccine so many children were dying of measles um, especially young young people and despite that when the mmr vaccine came out andrew wakefield convinced an entire country not to get the mmr vaccine and convinced the entire world that causes autism and so when you look at one vaccine like that i mean we still struggle with mmr rates Still, to this day. And that was almost 20 years ago that Andrew Wakefield came out with his fraudulent study. And so what's going to stop Wakefield or some other uh, fake doctor to come out with a study saying that the COVID-19 vaccine causes Down syndrome? We, we can't control for that. And it, we've seen that impact recently in our history in terms of medical history. We've seen that recently cause an entire country and an entire world to believe things that aren't true and plummet vaccination rates. And measles was the disease that was breaking out and was going rampant when I first stepped on the stage and started doing my advocacy because people were really afraid that measles was going to come back. And so we could see the same exact thing happen with COVID, where the vaccine comes out, we have it, it's at our disposal, but then boom, a fraudulent study starts going crazy, or one person says something that's not true, no one believes it's safe, no one believes that it's effective, and no one gets it, and then five, ten years down the line, COVID-19 has the same exact breakout that we're experiencing right now. You know, the, the, the scary thing, right, is that, you know, the preamble to a lot of this is, you know, the Bakersfield boys or the, the pandemic. Uh, video that um, have gone viral, despite the fact that there's really no reason that you should be trusting these people over the vast majority of uh, medical and public health experts out there. Can you, you know, one of the things that you do so well is you uh, help us to think about how to communicate effectively with some of the victims of misinformation. And uh, for listeners out there who uh, interact with people every day who say, well, you know, COVID is a hoax or, uh, you know, I'm not going to let the government tell me to wear a mask. Um, how should we be talking to them and how should we be engaging them to to, to see how we see it and to recognize that this is a real uh, dangerous public health circumstance and we need to protect ourselves and one another? Right. It's a hard situation because you have to be empathetic and see from these people's perspective on why they believe these things. And so for vaccines, the reason people don't vaccinate for a large majority is because they're afraid of their children being maimed or injured or um, having autism uh, because of the vaccines. 
And so you would see a large part of the reason people don't vaccinate could be because they are afraid for their children, which is a maternal and important instinct to have. And for COVID-19, it's a very different story because why are people choosing to believe these things and what is the underlining reason that has been taken advantage of? And a big part of that is freedom. And it's that quarantine has caused people to not be able to go anywhere, not be able to see their family. And that does, it, it sucks. It's not fun. And it's part of the actual like reason of quarantine is that we have to separate ourselves from big groups. And for people that are undereducated, people that don't really understand the importance of quarantine or are more prone to believe that it's ineffective, could become very angry that the government is telling them they cannot see their family, they cannot go and be in the public and live their lives, or maybe they lost their job and now they're unemployed. We can see a lot of those reasons why people would be really angry if they truly do believe the government's lying. And a big thing I point back to is, you know, do they have children? Are they undereducated? And do they have reasons to be angry? And so if someone didn't really go to college, doesn't really understand much about medicine or health, and they struggle in school, or like they have children um, who are like maybe 15, 16, and they're not going to be in danger, and they lost their job, they could very well be fed up with what's been happening and be, feel very slighted. It doesn't make it right to put other people at risk, but it means that maybe that empathy is important. So that way that conversation doesn't end up being a shouting match and a you're trying to kill my grandparents. I'm trying to live my life and protect people. Um, that doesn't really lead to much productive conversation and really any um, any outcome beyond people getting angry. And so even just despite any of that, if you want people to believe what you're saying and if you want people to take this seriously, that empathetic tone could convince the people around them that maybe you're right. Maybe my mom, who's been saying the government's a bunch of wackos and cursing up and down at everyone who wears a mask when we go out to Walmart... Maybe she's wrong because the person who talked to her about it was really nice about it and just asked her, like, you know, why why do you think COVID's dangerous? You know, I understand where you're coming from, and but here's where I'm coming from. Here's what I have to say. That could convince, you know, their children or their family or their relative or the person they're with that you're right. Mm. I uh, really appreciate that, right? Because I think so much of the assumption is that you, if you shame people into doing something, that they'll do it. And that just does not work. And I think if we're able to appreciate where somebody's coming from and bring that empathy to this conversation, while also recognizing that it is absurd that there are people who are actively peddling conspiracy theories about this disease that has killed 130,000 people to make money off of it, recognizing that those people are the real victims and they may go on to victimize others. And it's our responsibility to recognize both that they've been victimized by misinformation and also to help them in a way not to perpetuate that victimization, um, both through what they spread and also through the consequences of their behaviors. Ethan, uh, always a privilege to um, chat with you and thank you for your leadership in this space and uh, for helping us to understand better how to, um, to communicate about this disease. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you, man. I'm glad I could be here. After the break, we'll talk to Dr. Ashish Jha, a global health scientist and dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University, to learn more about where we are on the vaccine and what the scientific community needs to do to get ahead of vaccine hesitancy. My guest today is Dr. Ashish Jha. He is the uh, new dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University, longtime global health expert and a leading voice on this pandemic. Dr. Jha, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise and wisdom with us today. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to talk. 
Well, our, our discussion today is about uh, a vaccine. Of course, in the context of this pandemic, given the failure of our collective action, both to bring down uh, transmission and then, you know, once we had it down even for a second to keep it down through contact tracing, the inevitable conclusion that, you know, most of us who think about this often come to is that we're going to need a vaccine. That being said, the assumption with the vaccine is always that people will take it. And that may not be uh, a, a fair assumption right now, given what we're learning. Um, so just to, to step back for a second, where are we on a vaccine? Yeah. And, and to reflect on your question, um, it's incredibly frustrating to me that, you know, in, in response to a pandemic, there are two phases in my mind. There is a public health phase and then there's a biomedical phase. And the public health phase, and, and they don't, one doesn't necessarily follow the other, but the public health phase is you use public health tools like testing, tracing, isolation, uh, social distancing, mask wearing, all of those things to keep the virus levels down. And then you use the biomedical stuff to improve therapies and ultimately get to a vaccine. And it's amazing to me in this country that large parts of our nation have just kind of given up on the public health part. And we're sort of letting thousands of people, a thousand people die every single day, hoping that the biomedical stuff bails us out. It's unbelievable. It's unacceptable. But here we are. And so let's talk about that biomedical phase and let's talk about vaccines since that's the topic of our conversation. So I am very uh, optimistic about a vaccine. And uh, the issue that a lot of people raised early on is, well, would we ever find a vaccine? I mean, it's taken us 20 years and we don't have a vaccine for HIV, longer than 20 years, right? But this is a different virus. And I think all of us feel very confident that we will have a vaccine. The speed with which it is moving is unbelievable. And, uh, and my sense is that we will have a vaccine with data on safety and effectiveness that will make us pretty comfortable uh, by the end of this calendar year. Could it be a couple of months after that? It could. Could it be a couple of months before that? I doubt it, because that's a very optimistic timeline of, of end of the calendar year. So um, the only other thing to say about vaccines is there are 125 different vaccine products out there that people have made. We've got more than a dozen in clinical trials, a couple of them far along. So one of them, and my guess is many of them, are going to end up working and we will end up having not one vaccine, but many vaccines as we enter 2021. And can for our listeners, can you walk folks through exactly how a vaccine is made? Of course, we have the biomedical side, but then... How are vaccines tested for safety and then efficacy in populations? And you know when it's finally finally deployed, what is the certification on uh, the safety and, and, and efficacy of these potentially multiple vaccines? Yeah. So just ten seconds on the biomedical part. Um, you know, the biomedical part of this is you. There are lots of different ways of delivering a vaccine into somebody. Um, basically, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the immune system. To, to identify some part of the virus and generate an immunity to it so that when people actually encounter the virus itself, the immune system says, aha, I've dealt with this thing before, and then they clear it, right? So essentially, you're trying to fake out the immune system by acting like you, the person's been infected before. So you've got to find something that's going to generate that response. And there are multiple ways of doing it. And we actually, the good news is we are trying lots of different ways. So even if like the mRNA vaccine from Moderna doesn't work, you know, the uh, adenovirus-based vaccine from Oxford, AstraZeneca will. So the fact that we're trying lots of different ways makes me feel good because um, one of them ought to work. But then I keep saying work. What does that mean, work, right? And how do we know it's safe? 
And that's really the heart of your question. And the way I think about it is, let's take each of them separately. So work is, what do you want out of a vaccine? Well, what you want out of a vaccine is, if I'm exposed to the virus, I don't wanna get infected, right? The way measles works, right? I get a measles vaccine. If I got exposed to measles tomorrow, I've been vaccinated, my body would immediately clear that. That's what you want. But sometimes vaccines aren't able to deliver that, or they only deliver that partly. To me, the thing I want most is if you can't prevent the infection altogether, can the vaccine prevent me from getting really, really sick? And there is some reasons to believe that what this, these vaccines will do is they may not completely prevent the infection, but they may turn it into something that's very mild. So you get a little fever, you get a little cough, you got a little sore throat, it's like a cold. You turn a potentially deadly virus into a cold-like virus. That would be a win. That'd be great if we can turn you know, SARS-CoV-2 into COVID-19 into that, that would be fine. But the way we're gonna test that out is we're gonna give it to, the trials are about 30,000 people. So let's say 15,000 get the vaccine, 15,000 get a placebo. Then you let these people go about their daily lives and go do things and people are gonna get exposed. And you look to see how many people end up getting infected, how many people end up getting sick. And you wanna see that in the vaccine arm, the proportion of people who get infected and the proportion of people who get sick is much, much lower. If you don't see that, then it's not effective. I don't care what immunity is generating. The only thing we all care about is I don't wanna get infected, or if I do get infected, I don't wanna really get sick. It will take at least 30,000 people over a period of time to sort that out. Now on safety, there are a couple of things. You wanna look for any adverse events that people might be having. So I would not be surprised if the people who got vaccinated end up having like a little mild fever for 24 hours. We see that with other vaccines. I would be shocked if they didn't all complain of having a sore arm for two days. That's very common in vaccines. But what you wanna make sure is that the group that got the vaccine didn't have severe reactions. You wanna make sure they didn't have any life-threatening reactions. There is a, a very unusual um, vaccine-related uh, bad outcome uh, that we call antibody-mediated uh, disease enhancement, which is that a vaccine can theoretically make the disease much more severe. I think it's unlikely, but we want to look for that because the last thing we want to do is give out a vaccine to people that makes them more susceptible to a bad outcome from the virus. Again, am I worried about it? I'm not. Do I lose sleep over it? I don't. Am I going to look for data on that? Absolutely, because I want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So that's how you assess safety and, uh, and effectiveness is you just got to do this in a randomized trial, give it to lots of people and watch them over enough time so that the data comes in showing you that you're, you're pretty comfortable with both safety and effectiveness. That's really helpful. Now, where I think a lot of folks have concerns is that, you know, the fastest time from biomedical development to full certification of safety and efficacy and then manufacturing at scale was uh, the mumps vaccine, which took about four years. And obviously, um, we're in a circumstance now where the world has creaked to a grinding halt. And um, frankly, our ability to, to move forward uh, as we used to relies on, on this vaccine. So we're moving a lot faster. But we've got this Operation Warp Speed, um, which you know has a unfortunately cartoonish name, um, and we are surging forward. And the other challenge here is that not just the quickness, but also the fact that we are in an election year. This virus and pandemic have been politicized increasingly, and the New York Times recently reported um, that there is some fear that there is pressure to produce, quote unquote, an October surprise. Um, how, as a global health thinker, um, do you balance 
you know, the view on the data with the implicit fears that people might have that this process might be over-accelerated, considering, you know, the president who's implicitly leading this, his willingness to fudge on science, and the the reality of the election coming in November. How do you talk to folks about this and uh, and and make sure they understand that you know there there are no cutting corners here? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. And what I say to I say a few things. So first of all, my biggest point is politicians can have whatever timeline they want. The science has its timeline, and there are some things you can move faster on, and some things you can't. And we've got to let enough time pass between the time people get vaccinated and the time that we watch for safety and efficacy signals that you just can't. There's some just some physical kind of uh, limitations to how quickly you can get the vaccine. I just don't believe that we will have the level of data we need by November 3rd uh, to feel comfortable. Um, am I open to being wrong? Yeah. Like, uh, it, look, imagine on November 2nd, there's release of data. I'm going to look at the data. I'm going to look at it carefully. And for me, there is only one standard that I'm going to apply. Now, I'm not the FDA. The FDA will apply its standard. For me, there is one standard and one standard only, which is I have three kids. I have two elderly parents. Am I comfortable getting them vaccinated? Right? Because they're all going to turn to me for advice and say, should we get this vaccine? And that is a very high bar because I happen to love all five of those people. And if I am not comfortable, then I'm going to not... And then publicly, I certainly am not going to support it. I'm going to say, we got to wait. But I'm very, un, very skeptical that we can get this done by November 3rd. I, here's why I have not worried about the October surprise so much. First of all, it's way too predictable from a political point of view. Like, yeah, I think everybody, any data that comes out in the week or two before the election, people are going to provide extra scrutiny on. Second is the people leading this effort are scientists. So the president may want certain things. He may even put pressure on FDA, but the people who are running the clinical trials are scientists who have spent their lives working on these things. They are not going to be persuaded by a political timeline. I, I, I know enough of them to feel comfortable saying that. And last but not least is that, you know, if we cut corners and are irresponsible, people aren't going to take the vaccine, in which case we haven't accomplished anything. My line, you know, that I use, it's not my, somebody else said this first, but, you know, vaccines don't save lives, vaccinations save lives. There is a large gap between developing a vaccine and getting it into somebody's arm. And, and, and that gap is not just, a, it's not a scientific gap. It's a logistical gap, but it's a sociological gap. It's a gap about trust. It's about a gap about um, showing that you're, you, you care about people and you're trying to do the right thing. If you don't do any of that stuff, you can develop whatever vaccine you want. Won't get you anywhere. Yeah, I I, I want to pick up on that point because I think I think you're you're absolutely right there. In first, on the one hand, I, I want to respond to one of the points that you made is that a lot of folks you know think that science is just sort of this book from on high, like like the Bible or you know the the Torah or the Quran. It's it just comes from on on high, but really it's a language. And you know, presuming people are faithful in the way that they speak it, then. Scientists like you and me can sit down with that data and come to our own independent observations. And so it's not just the scientists working on this directly that uh, one studies, but it's the scientific community's uh, consensus on the science that is produced. To your point, though, about trust, right, and this question on on whether or not we trust, Pew Research did a survey. Uh, about 72% of Americans said that they'd be comfortable taking a vaccine. And that to me is actually astoundingly low, considering first 
we have for this vaccine to be really effective, uh, we have to be able to establish herd immunity. And then second, that it does speak to a creeping vaccine hesitancy. I, I was hoping, A, uh, you could help us understand why it's not just enough for you or me to get a vaccine and feel protected, why we need herd immunity. And then second, how it is that we start discussing with the American people uh, about why they ought to trust this process and trust the science um, to be able to hopefully get uh, universal uh, vaccine uptake. So great questions. I'm not sure I have any super brilliant insights, but let me share kind of how I think about it. I mean, on the issue of herd immunity, uh, the idea is that if you have large amounts of immunity in the population from a virus, then that virus is not able to propagate itself. And the idea, think of it this way. The virus is not going to go away. We've eradicated very few diseases. We've eradicated smallpox, but almost every other, we haven't eradicated measles, but luckily in most communities we have reached herd immunity. And the idea is every, you know, every year people are born, people come from other countries, some people may not be, and, and they're susceptible. And if one of them gets infected, if everybody they encounter is immunized, then that virus has nowhere to go. And then the virus sort of peters out. So you need a high enough proportion of a population for the virus to, if it'll keep getting introduced and then keep petering out. And that's what we want. That's what herd immunity is. Now, what is the level of, of immunization or immunity you need in a population? The standard answer for this virus is sort of 60 to, 60 to 70%. But that's, there are going to be communities in America, and I worry a lot about this, where that number might be much lower because of the level of trust that those communities might have. And by the way, no easy way to define what those communities are. It's not, oh, it'll be poorer communities or wealthier communities or educated or less. It's not that simple. It's, it's a complex interplay of, of issues. And people's hesitancy around vaccines has been around for a long time. Um, it's gotten much worse. I think it has gotten much worse for a couple of reasons. Uh, there are large misinformation campaigns often fueled through social media platforms like Facebook uh, that really have cast doubt in people's minds about the, about the basic benefits of the scientific process. You know, I don't trust vaccines because they are vaccines. I trust vaccines uh, because they've gone through a rigorous scientific process and I can verify it. And as you said, we have a scientific community that can verify it. So you're not trusting any one person. Um, but I think a lot of people have lost faith in that scientific process. And we've got to do a better job of restoring that faith. And, and, and some of it is countering that misinformation. And that, that does require. And then the one last thing I'll say... Um, Abdul, that I think is really important, is there are communities who really don't have deep trust in the health system for very good reason. Uh, our nation is, is a nation with a history of uh, treating certain groups, uh, to say unfairly, would be an understatement, right, in terms of especially with what we've done with uh, black Americans in, 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 in large parts of our country. So I think there's a particularly important effort that needs to be made um, with those communities to ensure that people have trust. And the best way to begin to do that is by speaking op openly and honestly and, and sharing data and, and really uh, trying to explain to people what we know and what we don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I really appreciate your point um, 
recognizing the implicit mistrust that, um, frankly, the biomedical establishment is responsible for in black communities, considering, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and, you know, a, a really troubling history of treating black people as test subjects rather than as uh, humans who ought to be dignified uh, in the system. I worry a lot, uh, frankly, about how we think about the staging of this vaccine, right? Because a, um, a an evidence-based approach would suggest that you would want to deploy vaccines in communities that are most heavily affected, right? Because you, you want to deploy a sort of containment strategy, considering that to knock down transmission early, uh, you want to get this to people who are most likely to have it transmitted to them. And that often then means, considering the disparities, that we will want to deploy in low-income communities and in communities of color first from an evidence-based perspective so as to protect those communities. Now, at the same time, though, you could imagine that being misconstrued as saying, we want to test it out in these marginalized communities first, and then, you know, it'll be good enough for everyone else. And I uh, worry a lot about how we communicate that in a thoughtful and empathic way. Um, how are you thinking about deployment strategy and, and how we talk about that? Yeah, I think you went to the heart of the question that that um, worries me most about our ability to do that effectively. So um, there are people working on this, or ethicists and, and experts who are thinking a lot about um, what is the ethical approach. And you could imagine that you start based on risk, potentially with frontline healthcare workers and other frontline workers. Totally get that, and I think that's probably right. Uh, then there are some group of people who are going to say we should we should vaccinate the elderly because they're the most vulnerable from a bad outcome. There are other people who say, actually, we probably think their immune, immune response to a vaccine is going to be less robust, and you want to try to protect them by vaccinating other people. So there's a lot of thoughtful work being done on that. I don't have a I don't personally have like my favorite. I want to see a good process. I want to see a process mm -hmm. that involves people who think about disparities. They're immunologists, uh, vaccinologists, ethicists. I want to see a very open process by which we say, okay, this is a pretty good plan. And you know, people will quibble around the sides. But absolutely as part of that, a, a high, like early in the, in the kind of line, if there's a line of who gets vaccinated, will be people um, who are essential workers, who come from communities that have been really hit very hard and doing that communication so that it is uh, appropriately seen as one driven by our desire to protect people, uh, not one driven by any desire or need to experiment on people, uh, will be very important. And I personally think that it's not going to happen with just people like me standing up and saying this, but I have to engage with leaders in those communities uh, civic leaders, political leaders, and it, and if they become convinced that this is good, they're going to have to advocate for it because um, just a bunch of scientists, you know, sitting at uh, academic institutions saying this is what we ought to do, or the government saying this is what we ought to do, is not going to be good enough. Um, we really need the uh, civil society leaders, particularly, I think, to engage on this. Yeah. Um, the the hard part. I, I interviewed um, Dr. Fauci a couple weeks ago, and what really came out of that conversation was how hard it is to deploy what we learn from the science in real time, both into public communication and public policy that is coherent and true to form, even as science changes. And uh, you've been heavily involved in the public conversation, uh, helping to shape what people understand and inform folks. 
And at the same time, um, having to do so implicitly, because I have, against the onslaught of politicization that has uh, cut down a lot of the collective action at the heart of our public health interventions, uh, as you discussed, I think, rather eloquently at the front. How do we continue to take this pandemic outside of the realm of a political discourse and frame it in the humanitarian and scientific terms that it deserves? Um, and how do we do so in a politically charged time? And I say this as someone who is both a public health professional and also heavily involved in politics. I, I don't know how to think about that in as honest terms, because of course, public health is political and politics informs our public health. And yet um, we are talking to people about what to do to protect their families and nothing could be more sacred and important. How have you thought about that and, and the balance in that? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I'm not, you know, I try not to be naive to the fact that I, things I say will be seen through a political lens. And that is, it is what it is. And, 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 and of course, I uh, worry that we have gotten to a point where it's everything that anybody says is excessively seen through a political lens. But I, you know, for me, um, the question that I sort of think about most, uh, and it's going to sound a little naive, but then I promise I'll try to get, to, is I try to, I try to get stuff right. I really spend a lot of time trying to think about what, what is the, my best synthesis of the science on any question in front of me. And I'm aware enough that there are times when I say something which I know is going to be seen in a certain light. So a couple of nights ago, I tweeted about how well New York is doing in terms of its infection control. And I said, you know, with some basic precautions, New York City public schools should be able to open up uh, and get kids back in. And I just felt face this torrent of uh, anger on Twitter and elsewhere of people who basically, because school openings has become so politicized, and if you favor school openings, somehow you're pro-Trump, uh, like just craziness. And so, you know, there were people on Twitter calling me a Trumpist. And, and I'm, my take is, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, obviously I'm not fine with that in the sense that I, I want people to evaluate what I have to say. But I understand that in these highly po uh, polarized moments, that's how advice is going to be seen. My job is not... To, nobody needs to hear political commentary from me. What they ultimately want to hear from me is my best assessment of the evidence, science, and data, and then people can do with it as they will. And that has meant uh, at times speaking critically or speaking in a way that does not you know, make the right happy with me and then occasionally uh, saying things that the left doesn't love. But that's, I just feel like there's got to be a room in our nation for people who try to call it as they see it not being naive, because all of us understand there's a political context here. Um, but that's what I have tried to do, and I'm sure I haven't done it perfectly, but um, I've tried to stick to that principle as much as possible. It's a, a rather impossible line to, uh, to walk, given how politicized this moment is. And, you know, for me, I've always tried to just say, lead with the science and let your politics follow that. And I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to chat about um, some of these ethical challenges and, and obviously updating us on the science of this vaccine. We do hope that um, when we get to chat next, it'll be in person. But until then, thank you for your work. And then we always ask all our guests, how are you spending these days? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, I really did enjoy it a lot. And I would love to come back and, and, and ideally in person and we can hang out and talk. How am I spending these days? Uh, this is unlike any period of my life. I know this is true for everybody. Um, these are kind of 18-hour days of 
uh, trying to both work with policymakers. I probably spend a majority of my time with policymakers, and then some minority um, with you know trying to communicate to the public, and then uh, trying to squeeze in enough time with my family and get keep a, a semblance of. of Order, but I have just come to conclude that until this pandemic is under better control, either through better public health or through our biomedical interventions, uh, I'm just going to be living in this surreal time as we all are. And so it's about trying to get through each day and um, trying to keep doing work that I think is impactful. And thank you for your work and um, uh, looking forward to, uh, to our next conversation. And, uh, and thank you again for joining us. All right. Be well. Bye-bye. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. This week, Congress failed to pass much-needed legislation to both extend and build upon the initial pandemic response legislation from March. Why? Because congressional Republicans couldn't wrap their head around the fact that, perhaps in the middle of a major infectious disease pandemic, people should be able to stay home and continue to feed their families, pay their rents, and have health care. We have already added $3 trillion to the national debt back in March and April. We already have a debt the size of our economy for the first time since World War II. I think that's no small matter. That's a big deal. And then Donald Trump did this. At his private club, the president brought out the pens, signing a series of actions that bypass Congress after two weeks of talks for COVID relief failed. To be sure, these executive actions don't go nearly far enough. Trump lowered enhanced unemployment benefits by 33%, failed to extend health care to the 5.4 million newly uninsured, and failed to bail out state and local governments reeling under the weight of having to pay for a COVID-19 response that the Trump administration itself should have run for them, under the weight of vast reductions in tax revenue. Never mind the fact that these executive actions probably aren't constitutional, as only Congress has the power to pay for things. What is most cynical is that Trump is trying to pass through executive fiat the things his own party opposed during the congressional negotiations. In effect, he's trying to get all the credit for coming through where Congress failed without telling the American people that he and his party had hijacked the process from the beginning. It's like intentionally driving another car off the road and then trying to take credit for saving a few of the passengers inside. And all of this, all of it, has to be seen in the context of the fact that this administration has been entirely MIA when it comes to responding to the actual pandemic. Which is, again, why we need a new president. To help out, we need you to sign up for Vote Save America, where you can adopt a critical swing state to help beat Donald Trump. I'll let my favorite person tell you which state you should adopt. Adopt Michigan. Vote for Biden. Join Emily and I on Team Michigan and go to votesaveamerica.com to sign up. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening. 